Good morning. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leeward Campus. Uh, have you noticed that we live in a, um, well, let's just say a very celebrity kind of culture? Um, I was reminded of that recently when I was in the San Diego airport. Um, I was on my way back to Kansas City and, uh, you know, went through security and all that and uh, made my way to the gate. And I pulled up my Wall Street Journal, I looked to my left, and my eyes just couldn't believe it. Because just a few feet away from me was my all-time favorite comedy actor. Yes, it was him, Bill Murray. <laughs> what about Bob to me is the ultimate or close classic, if you followed that. So I'm sitting there, you can imagine, I'm trying not to stare at this guy. I know it's him. And uh, I'm watching him, and all of a sudden, people around me you start feeling this buzz, right? And uh, <laughs> I'm trying to not look conspicuous, conspicuous and uh, fans begin to trickle over to him. He pulls a uh, baseball cap over his face to try to blend in. The airline people are coming over to him, taking pictures. I mean, I felt sorry for the guy, but there was a break. And I had this tension. <laughs> I had this tension. Should I or shouldn't I? And I have to tell you, maybe it's your prayers. Maybe it was miraculous. I don't know. I, I stayed in my seat. Uh, but I have to make a confession to you this morning as friends. And uh, <laughs> I pulled out my iPhone when he was looking the other way. And I went like this. <laughs> there he is. Oh, my. We all have that in us, don't we? We have this, what I call, celebrity-itis. Uh, we love finding ourselves attached to someone, a baseball team, a player, an entertainer, you know, or a business executive, or even, you know, the coolest kids at school. You know, we want to be attached and feel good and feel important that we're somebody. But what we often don't talk about is that uh, this celebrity kind of syndrome or celebrity-itis also makes its way into the church. It's all too easy for us uh, in our American culture, particularly, I think, to uh, put successful, whatever that means, or influential, or Christian leaders, or authors, or pastors on a high celebrity pedestal and somehow become attached to them. You know, celebrity-itis is a serious thing. It uh, raises its ugly head in many ways. I often see it. I hear it. For example, I'll hear people refer to a local church as Pastor So-and-So's church. Ouch. Or sometimes parishioners get so attached to their spiritual leadership that they are willing to uncritically overlook theological drift, moral indiscretion, or financial irresponsibility of their spiritual leaders or pastors or parachurch leaders. See, we all struggle with celebrityism. And it's nothing new because, like us, the Christians in the first century in the church at Corinth had a severe case of celebrityitis. When we walk back into the first century, the church at Corinth was an amazing city. Corinth was a sailor's uh, pleasure port. Um, you notice Athens and Corinth, and there's this little isthmus in between, like the Panama Canal. It was an amazing place, beautiful climate, amazing things grew there, fresh vegetables. I've been there, you know, uh, amazing grapes. I mean, it had everything. Corinth had everything. It was right next to Athens, so it also had a certain intelligentsia about it. Some of the Greco-Roman who's who lived there, and if you were a Corinthian, you were known for often for sexual morality, but also, let's just say you were into celebrities big time. You were celebrity groupies. 
That's part of being a Corinthian. So when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, what happened in the church is that they brought that with them into the church with devastating effects on their spiritual growth and the unity of the church. So the Apostle Paul, who actually had been with them, can you imagine establishing them in their faith for a year and a half? (laughs) That's the Apostle Paul. You ought to grow up by then, right? You ought to be firmly established in your faith. I mean, sitting under the Apostle Paul's teaching, don't you think? So the Apostle Paul writes this letter called 1 Corinthians that we're looking at. I'd like you to turn there if you haven't already turned there. And he has a real heartfelt pastoral concern for them. Last week, we looked at chapter 2. Paul gently but forcefully appeals to the Corinthians. Simply, the theme of 1 Corinthians 2 is to wise up. Wise up. And to wise up, we said last week, they have to look up. They have to have spiritual wisdom that only the Holy Spirit can give in their life. So Paul continues his brilliant train of thought in a beautiful continuity to chapter 3. So where Paul goes this morning is he wants to tell the Corinthians to grow up. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, if you don't wise up, as I said before, you will, will not grow up. If you don't wise up, you will not grow up. So the thoughtful reader of 1 Corinthians, this letter, asks the questions, what do the Corinthians need to wise up about? And if you look at this chapter and particularly the next chapter and the themes of the book we're going to walk through, it's in one word, one word, pride, P-R-I-D-E, big time. Spiritual pride was blinding the Corinthian believers to the lies they were believing and deeply impoverishing the lives they were living. Paul knew something we must grasp this morning wherever we are in our spiritual life, young, old, just starting our faith, been a Christian a long time, that spiritual growth is absolutely destroyed and impaired with spiritual pride. Nothing is a greater threat to your spiritual life, your vitality, your human flourishing than pride. That's why C.S. Lewis described pride as the ultimate vice. There is nothing else like human pride that stops spiritual growth in its tracks. I think of it like this. I'm a Superman guy. You know, I love Superman and heroes like that. I don't know what that says about me, but, you know, kryptonite stopped Superman, right? I mean, and that's what he's saying. Spiritual pride is kryptonite of of the Christian life. So the Corinthians need to wise up. And so Paul will give three truths in this chapter that are sequential and build to a literary crescendo. Three truths about spiritual pride that all of us, Tom included, need to hear this morning through the power of the Spirit. First, the first truth is that spiritual pride cannot be hidden. It cannot be hidden. Now, let me reread verses 1 through 4. And Sam, thank you for reading us that text so beautifully. Listen carefully as I reread this, because this sets the foundation for Paul's train of thought in the whole chapter, verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, or your text might say worldly, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet yet ready to eat it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, remember Paul has already tied this idea in chapter 1, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, another I follow Paulus. Are you not merely being humans? Now I want you to know as thoughtful readers and listeners of the sacred text, the opening verses of chapter 3, and this is why the 
editors made a chapter break here is there is a remarkable literary shift of tone. What Paul does here is he does not beat around the bush. As a pastor, as an apostle, he gets right to the point with a rebuke. There's another way to say it. It's hard for pastors to rebuke people. Sometimes we need to be rebuked, but this literary genre is rebuke. Paul gets to the point, so he's going to mess with us a little bit. You ready? That's where he goes. In verse 1, Paul shines his literary spotlight on a particular Greek word that is translated flesh or worldly. This is what sort of drives the weight of his, of his trajectory. The word flesh, often in English, that's probably the best translation in my opinion. The word flesh, often in English, means when we hear it, we think, you know, the stuff on our skin, you know, all this stuff that we have, right? But that's not what Paul is talking about in this particular context. What he's saying is that this idea of flesh is this mindset, this lifestyle that has a complete uh, self-sufficiency apart from God. It's an independence from God. In other words, what the Corinthian believers were doing is that they were saying they were Christian on Sunday and not living like it on Monday. Anybody relate to that? And Paul is calling them to the carpet. They're, they're worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but they're not living like Jesus on Monday. There is a massive Sunday to Monday gap that we're going to see all the way through this marvelous book. But Paul gets to the very heart of the matter early on in his letter as a wise teacher. He dresses up his pastor rebuke, you notice, a little more gently now, by painting pictures rather than pointing fingers. It's Paul's literary style. These pictures in chapter 3 are metaphors of comparison. And he builds his whole thought on the first one. That is, in verse 2, the metaphor of an infant or a baby. What he is saying is that, hey, you're just like babies when you should be grown up. Now, he plays with them a little bit, and he highlights this idea of baby food versus adult food. Now, I still remember when my kids were young. One of the things I hated most was feeding them peas or pureed peas or whatever they are in a little jar. I mean, at our house... Feeding our kids when they're young was, I mean, it was like the circus. I mean, but every time I open up those pureed peas, just the smell and look of them, I'm like, gosh, that takes away my appetite. You ever been like that? I felt sorry for my kids having to eat it. And I never thought when I fed it in their little mouths and it went everywhere, I never once thought, hey, I'm going to have that for dinner. <laughs> I mean, I thought a steak, you know. I, that's what Paul's saying. He says, you've got to be kidding me. You're messing with pureed peas when you want, you should have steak. Would you get with it? And Paul is saying it strongly, but in a sort of creative way. Do you feel it? Paul is feeling something. He's saying, come on, <laughs> get with it. You should be farther along from now than you are eating pablum. Goodness sakes. You're acting like spiritual infants rather than grown-ups. Look at all the jealousy and quarreling and strife among you. That's what he's saying. You are simply blind to your arrested spiritual development. You're woefully immature. And you can't see it. That's how spiritual pride works. That's why it's so devastating. See, rather than looking to Jesus, <laughs> they're looking to their spiritual leaders. Rather than following Jesus, they're following Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whoever the latest guru is. And Paul says, you can't see it, but everybody else can, and I can see it. 
Spiritual pride is not something you can hide. It's worn on your sleeves in life. It's just out there. It's like bad breath. You might not see it but, or, or smell it, but everybody else does. That's the idea. You are blind to it. So he ratchets up the rhetoric. The rhetoric is intense here. You've got to feel it. I think as we enter this text again, we need to ask ourselves, ask ourselves oh, how about us? How about us? The way we believe reflects in how we behave. And not just uh, in church on Sunday morning. Maybe we need some help there. I don't know, but wow. How do we behave at school with our teachers, with our classmates, our work colleagues, our families, our parents, our children? See, how we behave reveals what we believe. And often our behavior reflects our willful spiritual immaturity. How we live, how we behave, how we speak tells volumes to what we truly believe. And it tells everybody else around us of our spiritual maturity or immaturity or Christ-likeness or lack thereof. So Paul is saying to him, come on, what is your life telling you, Corinthians? And he's saying that to us. What about the level of your spiritual maturity? Spiritual pride cannot be hidden. Now the second truth, he builds off that, and that spiritual pride distorts our perspective about life. It distorts our perspective. You'll notice in verses 5 through 17, Paul subtly shifts his tone from kind of a cutting rebuke to a kind of gentle pastoral instruction. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Do you hear it? He still deals with the celebrityitis that's distorting their perspective on Christian leadership and spiritual growth. And the big point Paul is saying is it's not really about you after all. It's really about God. So get your eyes off Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Mary or whoever your eyes are on. Get them back on Jesus like I taught you. Now verse 5 we must not miss because the timelessness of this truth screams out at us with powerful, compelling unction. In verse 5, Paul states clearly, notice, that Christian leaders are servants of Christ. The language is the lowliest servant. They are not celebrities. Christian leaders are servants of Jesus. They are not celebrities. How important in our day is this for all of us to remember this? Pastors included, parishioners included, all of God's church. How important for us just to sit in that for a moment. Where are our eyes? Where's our heart? We all are just humble servants of Jesus, our Lord of glory. No one ever should be on a pedestal but Jesus. And he was on a cross. He's the one that deserves it. He was lifted up for us. Notice how Paul employs more metaphors to keep bringing these pictures into our imagination. One of a farmer and a builder, if you're following along, you see how he beautifully weaves this together. He asserts that God is the focus, not human leaders, and he succinctly summarizes his entire thought in these verses in verse 9. Let me reread it. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, while he has emphasized the agrarian metaphor of growth or agrarian sort of 
greenhouse idea of farming or, or horticulture. Now he shifts to building and construction. And he builds on this metaphor and he says, Christian leaders are gifted and important workers in the church, but Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the foundation. And notice where Paul goes. This is one of the most stunning sections of all of his writing about how we keep the right perspective when we see the future and what is coming. Do you notice how Paul tilts his trajectory forward to the future and how the future powerfully speaks to our present? He says in the text, you notice, you follow along, Christian leaders, Christian workers, all of us, not only in the church, but in our daily callings of jobs and service. No, he says everyone's work. If you look carefully at this text, you know he starts with the church and the leaders of the church, and he speaks to every Christian's work in the workplace and the world. Don't miss that. All of us, all of our sacred callings, whether it's in medicine or in, in, as a clergy member or whatever it is, a stay-at-home spouse is sacred to God. And notice our work matters. That One day we will stand before God and we will be judged according to the stewardship of what we have done with what we have been given. That's all of the church and the motives which shape what we did. Now Paul is primarily starting the context of Christian community, but the broader scope is very clear in the emphatic emphasis of everyone in the text. The imagery of fire and revealing what is good and lasting and true is true of all of us who are Christians. That we live and work and worship before an audience of one. And one day we will be held to an account of the stewardship of our life and our work and our calling and how we've loved others and treated others, not only in the church but our broader life. One of the New Testament scholars, this is often so missed by scholars and commentators, this text. They don't look carefully at what Paul is saying. One scholar I read recently hit it out of the park. This is what he says of verses 10 through 15. He says, this may be the most direct statement of the eternal value of our earthly work in the entire scriptural canon. I think he's right. The work we do on earth, again, paid, not paid, to the extent we do it according to the ways of Christ, survives into eternity. Wow, does your work matter every day? Spiritual pride has a way of distorting all that. And this is what Paul is saying. It can elevate some people's work and diminish other people's work or callings. This is why Dorothy Sayers, a remarkable colleague of C.S. Lewis, said this, and it is absolutely theologically stunningly right and needs to be heard over and over again. The only Christian work is good work well done. These Corinthian Christians were putting Paul and other spiritual leaders on a pedestal of more importance. Paul is equalizing the playing field and placing Christ right there. We would do well to do the same. Whether your work, friends, is done within the walls of the church, that's important work, or the walls of a factory or an office complex or our homes, we all work before an audience of one to whom we will give an account before a holy God one day for our stewardship of that. The local church we are called to is to help each other in those callings and help each other flourish. As the body of Christ, our individual spiritual growth, you see what Paul is saying, is inextricably linked to the spiritual growth of others in our community. The person sitting next to you in your community group, their spiritual life is deeply impacted by yours. Spiritual growth and the riches of Christ 
are available, yes, as an individual, but it is a collective spiritual growth that Paul is talking about it. Why does he do something very unusual in verse 16? He'll build up this later in another chapter, but he says, here's the next metaphor in verse 16. Do you see it? He says, we are a temple. Now, there's all kinds of cultural realities we'll talk about later of the temple of Aphrodite and Corinth and all that, but, but what he's saying here In the Greek usage, he is emphatic. He is talking about not you as a temple, as an individual, but the local church as the temple of God. It is a very emphatic Greek pronoun of collective y'alls. Y'all, not you. You all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within you as a collective local church. That's what he's saying. And we must treat each other accordingly not putting each other on pedestals, not creating jealousy and strife and discord, but loving humility, loving and serving one another in the bond of peace. See, the gospel profoundly transforms relationships in all of our life, at work, at home, at school, but in the local church itself. It makes us a different kind of community where love and humility and joy and peace and gentleness flow through our relationships as authentic people, saved by grace, empowered by the Spirit, struggling through life, clinging to Christ, clinging to one another. Addressing the devastation of spiritual pride that can just vandalize all that. And it's so true in all of our lives. Young, old, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, whether you're thinking about being a Christian, it's no respecter of age or person. Spiritual pride is the greatest threat to your life and mine and to our community. That's what Paul is saying. It cannot be hidden distorts our perspective. And notice where he builds. It impoverishes our lives. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul, in the most emphatic language possible in the Greek language, he says, let no one deceive himself. Think all caps, emphatic, in the original language. That's no one. Because all of us can be self-deceived. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are simply futile. Paul wants all of us to know with a teachable humility. All of us struggle with pride and spiritual pride. And there is a great danger of self-deception. Paul knew And we must grasp and hear it over and over again. I must hear it over and over again in my life. That the most dangerous lies ever told to me are not by somebody else, but by myself. Monsonese, who is one of the 4th century BC orators of Athens, that I'm sure the Corinth people knew well. They were thoughtful, intellectual people. One of the things he said so brilliantly about this, he said, in the 4th century BC, get this, And he was an order of Athens, just next door. He says, nothing is so easy as to deceive oneself for what we wish we believe. Contemporary psychologist Dr. Chris Thurman, who has a practice in Texas, speaks of the perilous danger of self-deception. And I have this up here. I want you to listen carefully as I read it. The lies you tell yourself every day are killing you, are killing you. Every lie that goes through your mind is slow, self-inflicted, psychological, spiritual death. Every lie you think costs you your life. The lies we believe are the mental bullets that kill our souls, and they inflict significant damage, often without our even realizing it until it's too late. 
This is what Paul is saying. Self-deception is perilous indeed. And it's driven by pride over and over again. So what self-deception, what prideful self-deception were the Corinthians dealing with? We don't know specifically right now. We'll see more in the book as it develops the letter. We'll have a greater understanding, but I do think we can say first and foremost, they had the deception. They really were doing okay. They really were spiritually mature when they were spiritual infants and they weren't doing okay. And I think the most important question for us is not about them, it's about us. What about us? What lies are we believing in our lives that are driven by spiritual pride that are blinding us? Let me suggest three of them that I think are very common for all of us. First is this. It's the lie, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. How many of you have seen the Lego movie? Uh, it's a great movie, right? There's a fun song. I won't sing it. Kids, kids at heart, right? You know the song. Everything is awesome, right? I mean, it just goes on like that. Everything is cool when you're part of a team and that's what It's a good movie, but the... The premise of the movie is a world of self-deception. Do you know that? And in Legos, there's this fictitious world. Lord Business. I, I like that. No, I don't like that, but that's the way it is. Wants you to think everything is awesome when it's really not. Now, there's another Lord of this or a small L that wants you to think everything is awesome in your life. That you really don't need to grow spiritually. You know a lot of the Bible. You've been in church. The evil one wants to believe you're just fine the way you are when you walk out here this morning. But the truth is God wants you to grow. He wants me to grow up spiritually. That never ends in our life. He wants you and me to keep growing in Christ-likeness and not remain a spiritual baby and infant. The second lie we often believe is I'm pretty important. You feel this in this book, don't you? You just hear it. Now, again, as image bearers, we are important, right? We are given great value because we are created in the image of God and that Jesus died for us on the cross. That is high value. You and I do matter. But the gospel declares that what really matters or who really matters is God himself. He is the supreme importance of all reality. We must not forget this. John the Baptist knew that when he, had, when he said of Jesus, what? He must increase, but I must decrease. What stops spiritual pride in its tracks is Christ-like humility. This is why Paul will say to Philippians, the Philippian believers who wrestle with this thing too, said Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. The third lie is I can do whatever. I can do whatever. It's easy for us to forget that our lives, our words, our attitudes, our priorities, our work, our relationships, our schoolwork, all of our life is a stewardship before God, our audience of one. And one day we will stand before God and give an account for everything. Everything. I'm not the judge of your life. No one else is, but God ultimately is. Who you are becoming, what you have done, and why you have done it. One of the greatest lies we tell ourselves is it really doesn't matter because I'm not accountable. You are accountable. I'm accountable to a holy God. That does not change. That leads us to lives, yes, of freedom in Christ. Absolutely. Leads us to live the lives we were created to live. But it compels us, dear friends, to increase obedience. The greater stewardship of all of our life, not to indiscipline or greater license. That is a lie from the pit of hell itself. God wants you to grow. He wants me to grow. 
He wants me to grow up. Paul concludes his thoughts. You'll notice how he ends. It's so beautiful how he ends this text. In verses 21 through 22, he points us to the richness in Christ. He says, let no one boast in men, verse 21. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. Do you feel this energy? All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. And Paul's pastoral heart is broken. He is saying to the Corinthians, he is saying to us through the Spirit of God, he's saying, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you are living and settling for such trash when such treasure is available for you. You have such unimaginable riches if you will grow up in Christ. If you understand what is yours in Christ, (laughs) foolish celebrity stuff, you can put that aside as nothing. Get rid of it, this jealousy, quarreling thing. Get your eyes off, servants of Christ, eyes off each other and get them back on Jesus. You are Christ. You are, and Christ is God. You have all the riches imaginable. So quit settling for junk and grow up and find the riches in Christ. Isn't that awesome? He ends so high in this beautiful text. He says to the Corinthians and he says to you and me, Pastor Tom, all of us, it's time to grow up. Time to grow up. Repent of your spiritual pride. Repent of your spiritual pride. It's time to wise up and it's time to grow up. Paul wants the very best for these people. He wants us to experience the riches that are ours in Christ and the richness of spiritual growth and maturity and intimacy with God to flourish. So how about you this morning? Where are you at? Yes, there's a high cost of discipleship. Jesus never hid the cross to win disciples. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him, what, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is a cost to following Jesus, but what we need to understand this morning, hear me very carefully. Paul is pointing this out as he builds to the end of the chapter that there is the most ultimate cost, something much greater, and that's non-discipleship and the spiritual immaturity that it inevitably brings. Do you, have you considered the indescribable, unfathomable cost and tragedy of a life of non-discipleship before God. Christ's communities are beginning at the core of our mission statement and why we were birthed is to be a caring family, yes, but what, of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. The heart of our mission is not just to be bigger or broader or to have all, it is to be a disciple of Jesus, growing disciples who are deepening and maturing and then out of that influencing the world the heart of our mission is spiritual formation and discipleship in Christ and for all of us to keep growing in Jesus all of us need to whether we are new in our faith whether we've been in church all our life whether we are seeking out what it means to be a Christian all of us need to grow every one of us and the greatest threat to that growth and our mission is spiritual pride in our hearts that's what Paul's saying so are we wising up in Christ Let me suggest three questions that I want to leave you with this morning that are like a spiritual pride assessment inventory. I'd like you to write these down and this week think about them before God. First, what lies am I believing? What lies am I believing about God? Maybe it's a God, you're not real, I don't believe in you. 
or that God has not been fair to me or doesn't care for me, that God has not been there for me, or that God will not hold me accountable for my life, that I am autonomous creature in the universe. What lies are you believing about God? What lies are you believing about yourself? One of the greatest lies we believe is that we're morally good enough for God to accept me the way I am. Or on the other side, that we're so bad and sin so greatly that we could never be forgiven. And both lies are from the pit of hell itself. Both unbelief, friends, and misplaced belief can be driven by spiritual pride. What lies am I believing? Secondly, what am I boasting in? See, we were created to boast. You're going to be hearing this word boast come up in this letter more than once. As created image bearers, we were to boast in God and the glory of creation and the glory of God. So boasting is not the issue, it's what we boast in. It's a deformed, disordered boasting. We boast about what's most important to us, don't we? Don't we? What we value, where our greatest affections are, what we treasure most is what we boast in. And what we boast in, whether it's verbalized or thought, is where our heart idols are located. Your heart and my heart and every human heart is the most deceptive reality of the universe. It is an idol factory. Only the good news of the gospel in Christ can rid us from. How are you handling the success in your life, your position, your accomplishments, the awards you've been given, the praise, or the affirmation in your life? Who's getting the credit in your life? Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands that I am God, that he knows me. He knows me. Who are you boasting in? One of the greatest, I think, new hymns of the Christian church is written by Stuart Townsend. It's called How Great the Father's Love for Us. Listen to the words, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Third question of assessment for us is, is the fruit of the Spirit increasingly evident in my life? While it is true, spiritual pride cannot be hidden. A lack of spirit-filled life. The lack of the spirit cannot be hidden. And a spirit-filled life and the character that it brings in all relationships, in our work, and our life, is evident. Spirit-filled life cannot be hidden either. When we walk in the power of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians that we will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit of what? Of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If I were to ask your spouse, if I were to ask your best friend at school, your colleague at work, how to describe what you are and who you are, what words would they use? Would it be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness and self-control? Few things are more devastating than spiritual growth, Paul says and spiritual pride. Paul gets right down to the matter, doesn't he? The heart of the matter. He says if we don't wise up about spiritual pride in our lives, we won't grow up. So dear friends, let's wise up so we can grow up.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us with such everlasting love. Thank you that you love us to point out the areas of our life that need attention. So Holy Spirit, speak into every heart this morning about the blinding pride that needs to be laid at your feet. 